You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. Our topic today is suicide prevention and our guest is Ken Norton. Ken is a licensed clinical social worker who serves as director of the Center for Community-Based Suicide Prevention and the Framework Suicide Prevention Project at NAMI, New Hampshire. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Ken has played a lead role in the development of the Frameworks Project, which is, which is designated as a national best practice program in suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. Ken participated on the committee which wrote New Hampshire's State Suicide Prevention Plan and was instrumental in the passage of legislation which establishes the State Suicide Prevention Council and currently sits as a member of that council. Ken was recently appointed to the steering committee of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The impact of mental illness and suicide have had on Ken's family deepened his professional efforts to reduce stigma and promote help-seeking and early recognition and treatment of mental illness and substance use disorders. Welcome, Ken, and thank you for broaching this very powerful subject with us. Thanks, and, and thank you for having us, particularly uh, uh, in conjunction with National uh, Mental Illness Awareness Week. It's very timely to be on. Yes. Could you talk to our audience a little bit about why do we have a National Mental Illness Awareness Week, and what, what is it? Sure. Um, the first one was established in 1990 by Congress um, at the behest of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and it was done in order to raise awareness about mental illness. Um, there continues to be a, a great deal of stigma and or discrimination about mental illness in our society and, and around the world and misunderstanding that, in fact, mental illness is a biological brain disorder, the mental illnesses are. And um, and people don't talk about them, and, and because they don't talk about them, um, people don't seek treatment, and um, it becomes a, a huge problem in terms of uh, how we view them as a society and as a world. So what will be happening nationally to promote mental illness awareness this week? Well, different states have different events, either uh, media events. Uh, for instance, in New Hampshire, we uh, we just had a walk for mental illness y uh, yesterday that was very well attended, and uh, we have a number of other public events in order to um, promote um, people getting help and, and understanding about what mental illnesses are and that effective treatment is available. So if people want to learn more about national uh, Mental Illness Awareness Week, where could they go to find out more? They could go to the NAMI National website, which is www.nami.org, and, uh, and there is a uh, whole thing on Mental Illness Awareness Week, and they could get information there. Um, I'd kind of like to begin to talk a little bit about suicide prevention, and um, I'd like to just begin by acknowledging that suicide is a rather difficult subject for most people to broach, and you talked about the stigma and discrimination that happen with mental illness, but it seems almost twofold for family members who, whose family member has um, committed suicide. I just wondered if, if, that, if you could talk a little bit about the, the stigma and discrimination of people 
experience? Well, it's um, it's really quite pervasive, although things have been changing and a lot of progress has been made in the last few years. Um, but um, many family members who have a loved one who dies by suicide are left with uh, a tremendous amount of uh, guilt and or self-blame or, um, you know, feeling like they could have or should have prevented it or um, or really just the powerful question of why, not understanding why their loved one did what they did. And uh, and oftentimes, despite, you know, tremendous effort at trying to understand that, that question generally goes unanswered. By other people, what, what many people experience is that other people avoid them after a suicide death of a loved one because those people don't know what to say, and because they don't know what to say, they literally, you know, we hear from families where people that they've known or, you know, um, people that they do business with will cross the street to avoid speaking with them or will never acknowledge the death, and um, and that adds to that isolation and shame that people feel. I know we're going to be talking about best practices. Is there a best practice for the family members for post Prevention, I guess, is what you call it after um, somebody dies with family. Uh, it's a great question, and uh, and actually, we we do have a a, a postvention program that that is a national best practice uh, through NAMI New Hampshire, and I, I believe it's actually the only um, national best practice specifically for promoting healing and reducing risk after a suicide death. The reason that it's so important is because one of the things that we do know about suicide is that having known somebody who dies by suicide statistically increases our risk if we've known somebody. So it's very important that we work with um, people who have lost somebody to suicide and, um, and work with them to get help and to recognize that other people that they know might be at risk and uh, to try to reduce that risk. And um, can you talk a little bit about why it is an evidence-based practice? What makes it an evidence-based practice? Well, it's it's actually a best practice a best and practice. not an evidence-based okay. practice. And okay. I can explain that a little bit, which is that um, the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or otherwise known as SAMHSA, um, maintains the, the evidence-based practice registry. And the... That registry was developed primarily for programs that um, treat either mental illness or addiction or substance use disorders. And it wasn't necessarily geared towards suicide prevention programs. So as programs started to go for that evidence-based designation, it really didn't quite fit. And so SAMHSA decided that what they would do was, um, for the most part, is to um, review the whole process and start with um, with programs that are best practices, so that are reviewed to um, to be the best practices in the field by by an expert panel that you know that reviews the materials and makes that determination. There are a, a very small number of programs that are evidence-based programs, and the difference being that those are ones that have had extensive research that shows that the program is effective at um, doing what it is that they say that they're, they're going to do, in this case, preventing suicide. What are some important things that family members should 
do to, to help themselves after the death of a loved one by suicide? Well, the uh, probably the, the two most important things are to, um, first of all, acknowledge that it is a suicide death, and this can be very difficult for families to do. Um, however, when they don't do it, it results in a situation where it, it really further isolates them. Um, and, and, you know, if you can think of a scenario where, and probably some, some listeners have experienced this, where uh, particularly in rural areas where it's very apparent that the person died by suicide or even known, perhaps, you know, uh, somebody in local law enforcement responded to the death scene and, you know, and, and they're aware and, you know, the word is, is out, but the family doesn't acknowledge it. And then, you know, the memorial service, the funeral, whatever, nobody is allowed to say the S word. And, you know, and, and that becomes very problematic in terms of, again, promoting that um, healing and, and reducing risk. When the family does acknowledge that it's a suicide, oftentimes what we hear from families is, is that they are amazed at how many of their um, loved ones and people they know come forward as you know their coworkers or their neighbors, and they say, "My mother, my brother, you know, my friend. Um, when I was in high school, I, you know, all these people have had somebody die by suicide, and they get a tremendous amount of support, and that begins to reduce the isolation. The second most important thing is to practice self-care skills, um, which can be very difficult when, you know, when you're experiencing a, a sudden traumatic death of a loved one, um, to get proper sleep and to eat and to exercise and to take care of yourself. And then sort of the, the next one in line with that is to recognize some of the warning signs um, for suicide, like hopelessness or anger or isolation or mood changes or talking about death or suicide. Because, again, other people may be at risk as a result of that suicide death. If they had, you know, if they had previously thought about suicide, because there's a social taboo about suicide, when somebody else dies by suicide, that might make it more acceptable for somebody who, uh, in the mind of somebody who's been thinking about it that that's what they want to do. So that there, there is a lot that families can do to help resolve the, certainly the trauma and the pain that they experience as a result of somebody's death by suicide. Absolutely. And, you know, and then beyond that, some other things that they can do is find a, a support group when they're ready or, you know, just get information so that they realize that they are not alone. I, I think that that's the biggest thing is because when it happens, people really feel very alone and, and connecting with other survivors can be a, an important part of um, the healing process. You know, it seems like, I know when I'm first starting in this profession, Asking someone if they were suicidal was probably one of the most difficult questions that as an early person, somebody early in my profession, I had. And it was just, it, it was hard to ask. And then you kind of held your breath waiting for the answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, even today it's something that we don't like to talk about. Even as professionals, I think sometimes it's um, it's well, not given as much credence as, as we probably should. Thank you, because that is such an important point, is that um, stigma isn't just related to the general population, that, you know, as professionals, 
I know that um, that when I went through my master's program, I received no real specific training in suicide prevention, and studies have shown that that's true for most um, people taking you know master's level courses. That um, suicide suicide has really been left to on the job training, and as you said, it is perhaps the most difficult question to ask somebody, and it's even more difficult if you don't feel like you have the proper training um, if the person says, yes, I am thinking about suicide. So um, there is a lot of um, professional stigma about it. Um, There was a study, a recent study out of California that showed that um, of teenagers who were seeing their primary care physicians that about 37% only were asked by their primary care provider about their mental health and their well-being. Um, and of that um, percentage, um, 67% were females. So it was um, pr- primarily the, the females who were being asked the question and males who were dying by suicide aren't being asked. And we'll come right back to talk um, with Ken Moore about um, why young males are so prone to um, attempt and or commit suicide. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 4259 A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody, to One Hour at a Time. I'm Mary Woods. Our guest today is Ken Norton, and we're talking about suicide 
prevention, intervention, and postvention. And we started out by talking about the postvention in our first segment. And um, right before we went to our commercial break, Ken, you were saying about how young males have such a high rate of suicide attempts. And could you talk more about why and um, what that's about? Sure. Um, well, males in general, um, not just young males, but die by suicide at a rate um, four times higher than um, females do. Females attempt suicide at a rate much higher than than men do. And um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one of the reasons is that males tend to use more lethal methods um, when when uh, they're attempting suicide, and that um, males have difficulty asking for help. I mean, we, we, we joke a lot as a society about, you know, men won't ask for directions, um, but men have a great deal of time difficulty asking for help, where women are much more relational generally, and, you know, and it's easier for them to ask for help. So a lot of those suicide attempts um, that, uh, that females make have very low lethality, and they're really essentially um, a way of asking for help. But, you know, part of that point that I was, I was making as well, which is important to keep in mind, is that um, is that the helping professionals don't necessarily, you know, ask males or, you know, are, are much less apt to ask males about their mental health or whether they're suicidal, that that's part of that, you know, uh, the difficulty that you were raising with asking that question that, you know, that even uh, seasoned providers feel. Right. Um, what do we know about um, suicide rates and prevention? Well, what does the data show us? Well, um, nationally, suicide um, is, um, people are often very surprised to, to find um, that how high the suicide rate is. And the, the, the rate in the 10 to 14-year-old age group and actually 10 to 24 is that it, across the U.S., it's the third leading cause of death. Um, and then when you go up the next 10-year age group, the 25 to 34-year-old age group, it's the second leading cause of death. And, um, you know, and, and by comparison, in, in that age group, um, HIV deaths are, um, you know, are about a third less deaths in that age group, and they're, they're ranked number six, and yet we hear much more about those deaths. So, you know, then moving out, you know, to uh, other ages, it's uh, it's the fourth leading cause up to age 44. And then even, you know, as you're getting up into older adults, it's the eighth leading cause of death, 55 to 64. And then overall, um, for all ages, it's the 11th leading cause of death in the U.S. So it, it is a significant uh, issue across the lifespan. And again, the fact that we don't hear about it and that we don't talk about it is part of the problem and the challenge that we face in preventing suicide. Um, is there a cultural component to suicide attempting? Um, well, there there is absolutely a you know a cultural uh, component to to all aspects of suicide. I mean, in terms of race and ethnicity, for instance. Um, in terms of suicide deaths, um, white males account for 80% of all the uh, the deaths in the U.S. And um, so, you know, the uh, the rates for um, 
for Hispanics, or it's about six percent of the total, and uh, and for uh, blacks, it's about six percent of the total. So, I mean, you know, that's that's certainly a consideration. Within other cultural aspects, there are, you know, um, for instance, there is recent data showing um, very large increase in um, in the attempt rate for Hispanic females. Uh, we know that. Indians have very high rates of suicide, the indigenous populations in the U.S., um, and that, you know, there's cultural aspects to that. So there, there are a lot of cultural aspects to both suicide attempts and suicide deaths. And to kind of get back to what you were saying earlier, we know that, um, that boys or men typically um, die four times more than, than girls or women from suicide, but do women try it more often? They do. They they attempt it uh, three times more than than males do. So I mean, there's you know the and obviously in terms of suicide prevention, we want to prevent deaths, but we want to prevent attempts as well. I mean, we you know we want to move things upstream so that we're identifying people at risk before they get to that point of. Um, any suicide attempt. And how do we differentiate between self-harm and a suicide attempt? Well, that's that's an excellent question, and it's it's a very challenging question because, um, you know, part of that becomes sort of the the ultimate question that a coroner or a medical examiner is faced with determining when there's a death. Um, you know, did this person um, intend to die? And if we look at, you know, the most... The most obvious examples of those are drug deaths. Was this was this a suicide attempt or was it something else? Um, and you know, and, and what was that person's intent? So, as you back down from that, with you know, with attempts where you have lower lethal attempts, you know, then then how do you make that determination? Many times you make it by asking for starters. That a lot of people that. Um, engage in self-harming activities will tell you that they are not trying to kill themselves and that they're not suicidal, that they are in pain and that the self-harm is a way to um, for them to release that pain. But it's really something that only a qualified mental health professional should be, you know, working with that individual to make that assessment between what the difference between self-harm is and what the difference between suicide intent is. What's the relationship between mental illness and substance use and suicide? Uh, well, the um, the overall relationship is that according to the Center for Disease Control in the U.S., 90% of all people who die by suicide have either a mental illness or substance use disorder. So there's a very close connection there. And then we know that um, from uh, from National Violent Death Reporting Act that that 25% of people who die by suicide are intoxicated at the time of their death. And then about 60%, these are estimates, or the, the attempts as estimates because not all attempts are reported, um, but 60% of people who attempt suicide have some um, substances on board at the time of their attempt. Um, what are the warning signs or indicators if somebody's attempting, contemplating suicide? Well, the, um, the, the biggest ones to really watch for are that the person is talking about death 
or, you know, or, and, and when I say talking, it might be also drawing. A lot of times it's, you know, art teachers in school that, you know, that see drawings that young people are making that, you know, are alerted to this, or, you know, the internet, MySpace pages or Facebook pages that, you know, that have a lot of um, death-type content on it would be cause for concern. Um, so talking about death or suicide or looking for the, um, the means to, um, to kill yourself with, so, you know, looking for a way that you're going to um, kill yourself. Uh, but, you know, those are really the, um, the most important ones. And then, you know, beyond that, you know, any real sort of, there's a number of different... Um, you know, like hopelessness and anger, which is which is typically, again, you know, anger is often missed in males um, as a sign of depression, which it can absolutely be. And instead, we, you know, we just see, well, there's another angry guy, um, and you know, and and that's missed as a sign of potential depression. Changes in sleep patterns, changes in eating patterns, um, increased alcohol or drug use. Um, you know, isolation, and, and when these are combined with, you know, with one or two of them together or, you know, or even sometimes passive statements like, I wish I were dead, then, you know, all of, all of those signs should be taken seriously and, uh, and explored further with somebody. Are there protective factors for folks as well? Absolutely, and that's a great question. I, you know, the... Um, like risk factors, I mean, risk factors can come in several categories. They can be with the individual or they could be with the family or they could even be, you know, within a community. Um, likewise, protective factors um, come under those same um, same categories as well. And, you know, a lot of them are, are, are actually the, the opposite of the risk factors. So if you think about um, what some of the risk factors are, then when you think of the opposite, you'll think of protective factors. But you know, it's like having a very strong uh, network of friends or, you know, supportive people or family in your life, good health or access to health care, um, good coping skills and, and, you know, and social skills, um, belonging and a sense of belonging to a group. Um, somebody asked me recently, well, what about gangs and suicide? And, you know, and, and that was a really good question. Well, one of the, one of the, uh, protective factors that we often don't think about with gangs is it does promote a sense of belonging, maybe not in the sense that we would want people to belong, but they do feel like they belong, and that can be a protective factor. So um, so any of those kinds of things, uh, doing well in school or in your job, um, you know, having sobriety or, you know, minimal use of alcohol or drugs, all of those things can be important protective factors. Um, when we think about um, suicide, you know, we think about, like, how it's portrayed in the media. And sometimes, to some extent, it's, there's been movies when it's almost been glamorized. And I'm just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of our social responsibility and how we present suicide. Well, that's an excellent question. Um, one of the things that we realize, I think, now is that that we are only going to be able to change cultural attitudes and perceptions about suicide when we work across different systems. In 1999, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a report that identified suicide as a major public health issue, and then following that report, a national strategy was developed where suicide experts from around the country came together to 
plan out what um, what steps were important in terms of working on suicide prevention. And one of those steps that was identified was the just what you described, the role of the media in terms of how suicide is presented in, um, in media. As a result of that, folks from the Annenberg Foundation and the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization came together and they developed guidelines for uh, media in terms of how they present suicide and and following that, those 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 recommendations have been issued, and a lot of work's been done with media about how they present suicide. And we'll be right back, and we'll talk about where you can get more information on um, how to portray and how to talk about suicide um, from a more positive perspective. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. We're talking with uh, Ken Norton, a licensed clinical social worker, about suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. And before going to break, we were talking about the role that media plays in the issue of suicide, and that certainly um, the Center for Disease Control might be a resource for that if you're interested in that. I'd like to um, talk a little bit about the use of language and some of the myths that are out there about suicide. We know sometimes language, well, not sometimes, but most of the time language is what is stigmatizing. And we also know that um, that there are myths. I, I, I know one of the myths that I remember hearing early on is that um, if somebody's talking about suicide, it means they're not going to commit it, and it's the people who don't talk about it are the ones who end up being successful. So I kind of like to throw both of those uh things that you can in terms of language and then myths. Okay. Um, well, the you're right about the language piece, and, and that is somewhat um, 
you know, complex, but some of this comes from suicide survivors, and it starts with the, um, with the word commit. Um, many survivors don't like the term commit suicide because it often has negative connotations um, when you think about committing a crime or committing adultery or being committed to a psychiatric facility. Um, the, other, the other part to the word commit is it really belies the, the whole um, thinking of somebody who is suicidal, which is that research has shown us that even when people make very lethal attempts, that they're really very ambivalent about dying, that that notion of you know, yeah, this person, you know, I'm really going to kill myself. I mean, that's a very small percentage of people. Most people are really quite ambivalent about dying. They're very ambivalent about living as well in that moment. But, you know, it's um, they want the pain that they're in to end, um, the psychic pain. And <clears throat> so there is that ambivalence there. One of the other terms that... Um, that is people find very objectionable is that the whole concept of um, a successful suicide or a failed suicide attempt. Um, and, you know, obviously we don't want to in any way encourage anybody to succeed at suicide nor by, you know, either inferring that an attempt was a failed attempt. So, you know, instead we use language like um, that um, they had a low lethal attempt or, you know, or that a very high lethal attempt. Instead of saying committed suicide, we might say that they died by suicide or they took their own life or they died at their own hand or even using suicide as a verb that they suicided. Um, so, I mean, those those are two very important, you know, terms to kind of keep in mind when talking about suicide. And you're right that they, they can impact on stigma. And interestingly, those are in the CDC media recommendations. And, and one resource for getting those recommendations is the Suicide Prevention Resource Center has a very nice one-page front and back that can be you know, used by media with a section for editors and reporters. Um, and that's available at uh, sprc.org. And could you comment a little bit on the myth that if somebody's talking about it, it means that they're probably not going to attempt it, and the people that don't talk about it are the ones you have to worry about? Sure. Um, well, the reality is that that we know, again, from research that up to two-thirds of people communicate their, uh, that they're thinking about suicide prior to their death. Now, unfortunately, we know that because after their death, um, people come forward and say, gee, you know, they said such and such, and, but I didn't really take it seriously, or, you know, I thought they were kidding, or I thought because they're talking about it that they're really not going to do it, those kinds of things. We know that that rate is, is even higher, up to 80% of um, youth who communicate their plans in advance. So it's very important that people take any comment about death or dying or suicide seriously and follow up with that person around that comment. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the best practice programs are to prevent suicide? Sure. Generally, um, the best practice programs come in, you know, in a few categories. And many of them are school-based programs that, you know, because a lot of the suicide prevention effort and, uh, and funding recently nationally, the, the Garrett Lee Smith Memorial Act passed a 
Congress and was signed into law in 2004. That was the first ever federal suicide prevention funding. It's specific for young people up to age 24. So many programs focused on school-based practices, and that includes training staff um, who might be everybody in the school. The terminology that's used are gatekeepers, so anybody that comes into contact with somebody at risk. So that might be bus drivers and cafeteria workers, as well as administrators and office staff and teachers and nurses and, and guidance counselors. So that's one kind of type of program. And then another program is that's um, actually an evidence-based program. Are There are some screening programs, like the Columbia Teen Screen Program, that actually uses a computer to have uh, students answer questions and then identifies that they might be at risk for suicide or mental illness and need some follow-up. The, um, the program that we've developed, and I can talk a little bit more about this later on, but we've really developed a community-based program where we involve all segments of the community. We work with law enforcement and faith leaders and educators and mental health providers and really look at training all of those different professions to work together around suicide prevention. So that's more of an ecological or community-based approach to suicide prevention. What's the difference between prevention and intervention? Well, prevention would be um, work that's done prior to an actual incident where somebody, um, intervention would be once somebody discloses that they're thinking about suicide or, um, or they've made a suicide attempt. And what are effective treatments for intervention? Well, um, the first is asking the question, um, are you thinking about suicide? And I guess that's where it really straddles that, you know, where it moves from prevention to intervention is when you are concerned about somebody or when you're worried about somebody, you ask them directly, are you thinking about killing yourself or are you thinking about hurting yourself? And um, and then from there, following up to, depending on the answer, to, to make sure that the person gets connected with somebody who's qualified to assess their risk. Um, and, you know, depending on what the response is, if, you know, if the person says, no, I'm fine, you don't need to worry about me, but your gut is telling you um, that that's not so, then you should really listen to your gut. And, you know, and the other part to that is checking out with other people who might know this person. Gee, I'm really worried about, you know, John, are you worried too or have you seen anything? Because a lot of times everybody has a little piece of the puzzle and it's only when, you know, you put all the pieces together that, um, that things become very obvious. So, so that is uh, an intervention that works. Another great intervention that, um, that's actually evidence-based is restricting access to lethal means. Firearms in particular um, are highly lethal and more people in the U.S. die by, um, you know, by gunshot wounds than any other um, method. And so re restricting access to firearms when somebody is suicidal can be a, a very effective intervention. Likewise, um, you know, medications or pills or, you know, or even keys to a car, I mean, talking with the person about what, you know, they're thinking about doing and then removing them, um, again, you know, even though it doesn't, you know, make sense, common sense-wise, research shows that most people don't substitute and find another way of killing themselves. And you were talking about community resources. We know that there are um, hotlines for, for people who um, 
uh, the Samaritans, I believe, still have a hotline service. Samaritans, Samaritans does. Um, and then there's also a national suicide prevention uh, lifeline, and, and that number is um, 1-800-273-TALK or 8255. Uh, again, 1-800-273-TALK or 8255. That uh, number is, um, is staffed all across the United States by certified crisis centers, and, um, and those um, centers are staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That particular number as well has a, a special um, answering service for veterans and their families. And if you, um, you know, you're, you're given a prompt at the beginning when it's answered, if you're a veteran, to press 1, and that um, takes you to this special answering service for veterans dealing with uh, veteran suicide issues. Um, we also know that, like a local emergency room, if you if you want to take a friend or a family member, people can be usually assessed for um, suicide risk at, at emergency rooms. Um, the police can also be um, a resource in, in a situation like this as well, can't they? Absolutely, and you know, if I mean, if it's an immediate emergency, the best thing is always to just call nine one one. Um, could we talk a little bit more about, does prevention really work? I mean, that's one of the questions we hear in substance abuse treatment and mental illness all the time. Does prevention really work? But in terms of when somebody is this depressed or feeling this badly about themselves, does prevention work? Well, it's it's a great question, and, and it's a, a challenging question because um, the incidence of suicide, even though, you know, those figures that I gave earlier about how many deaths occur in the U.S., um, the, the incidence is quite low, so it's hard to actually measure the effectiveness of, um, of suicide prevention efforts from a scientific point of view. But we, what we do know is that most people who attempt suicide don't go on to die by suicide. The, the estimates there are um, just under... 90%. So, um, so again, that you know, that also gets at that you know um, ambivalence that people really don't want to die. But what we do know is that treatment for mental illness and uh, substance use disorders is is very effective right now. And so, uh, because oftentimes the underlying aspect of somebody's um, thinking about suicide is depression or another mental illness or substance use. Getting treatment for those um, illnesses can um, can prevent suicide and and a number of other you know interventions. I mean, first of all, talking about suicide as we're doing right now is the best way of preventing it. So suicide prevention really can be effective, and we just need to talk about it and reduce the stigma around talking about it. Typically, um, what do we do for um, best practices for young children and We'll be right back to talk a little bit more with Ken about um, suicide, and we're going to talk more about the Framework Suicide Prevention Project um, at NAMI, New Hampshire. We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Ken Norton around suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. And before we went to break, I was just going to ask you, Ken, about um, the two ends of our spectrum, childhood and um, the elderly, in terms of prevention and intervention. Is there anything that you want to say about either spectrum, either end of the spectrum? Well, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the older adults first, which is that what we, if you look at a graph of suicide attempts, in the U.S. versus suicide deaths, what you see is that the attempts go way up um, starting at age 10 and peaking in the later teen years, and then the, it begins to trail off. But when you get to around age 70, the, the number of attempts is almost the same as the number of deaths. So um, people, people tend to, at that age, make very few attempts um, and or their attempts are, are highly lethal and they result in death. So with, you know, with older adults, the first thing is to, again, recognize that, you know, that depression is not necessarily a feature of getting older, that it is a condition, it's a mental illness that can be treated um, regardless of what age you are, and that you know, isolation and hopelessness should be uh, talked about with an older adult, um, and that's you know, an important piece of preventing um, suicide in older adults. There's, um, in terms of children, um, adolescence is obviously a very uh, turbulent time of life for, um, for young people, and it can sometimes be difficult to sort out the difference between some of the, some of the issues that we talked about in terms of uh, risk factors or warning signs from what, ad- from what um, are you know, issues that adolescents are dealing with, like hopelessness or anger or, you know, or isolation or withdrawal. But, you know, what's key to look at are changes in in patterns with them. And um, when you see a change in behavior, that's what you really want to focus in on. And, again, asking that young person directly about, you know, what they're thinking and, and how they're feeling. And the one other group that seems to be a significantly high risk is one you mentioned earlier, and that's our returning veterans. And um, is the framework suicide prevention project also available to like returning guardsmen and New Hampshire? We are doing a lot of work with um, with the National Guard in New Hampshire 
um, both for active duty um, and for the family members as well. Because um, the National Guard in particular are civilian soldiers where you know, they are in our communities and then when they're deployed, they return and are very quickly, sometimes within 72 hours after deployment, back in our communities. So, um, so suicide prevention is a huge issue uh, for veterans. We know that of the over 30,000 uh, suicides a year in the U.S., that 5,000 of them are veterans. And the uh, Veterans Administration last year appointed or added positions for 153 suicide prevention coordinators around the country at their various facilities. And likewise, the Department of Defense is, um, has a number of efforts underway to promote suicide prevention. It's, it's not just returning military who are at risk. It's really, you know, um, that we're seeing increased rates across all lines um, and, um, and not just people who are deployed. So um, what is Frameworks? Well, the Frameworks project, as I mentioned before, really looks at a community-based aspect of suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. So first of all, we really look at all three areas. And um, we have developed special protocols and training for all the key service provider groups, such as law enforcement or faith leaders or educators or primary care providers or emergency departments. And those trainings are intended to promote an integrated response where we've identified the gaps between those different service delivery systems and how we're going to work to close those gaps. And so we provide we um, in in the, the the most comprehensive part of how we implement the program. We go into a community or a region and we train all those different groups so they have a a shared language and an understanding. Um, and then after we've trained all the adults, we will go into the schools and we will train the young people. We use a train the trainer model where you know, we train people, including youth, to present to their colleagues. So we would train law enforcement to train law enforcement or, you know, or other groups, and then when we get the students, we train the students. Uh, and we train students last because we want you know, adults to, uh, to understand what resources are available and how to intervene when, we're, um, when we do work with students. Part of the program also includes that postvention piece, which is how to promote community healing and reduce risk after a suicide death occurs, um, and to train communities and key service providers in the event of a suicide, how they can respond, how they can work with the media, what types of memorial services um, <clears throat> might um, increase risk versus reduce risk, those kinds of things. So we can provide training for any of those individual groups, including gatekeepers, just and gatekeepers being any non-professional person, parents or neighbors, or you know, or go into a business and train uh, employees so that they can um, watch out for each other, kind of thing. Or we can provide that specialized training to each of those groups. So, um, how long has this project been in development? Well, it um, it's actively been developed since about 2002 some of the um, some of the earlier sort of focus groups and, and that, that got it underway started earlier than that it actually was begun through the youth suicide prevention assembly in New Hampshire which is this, a loose coalition of citizens who are concerned about uh, 
suicide prevention. And then in the last five or six years, NAMI New Hampshire has been developing it and moving, developing these uh, best practice protocols and trainings and then getting the um, that national best practice designation for that work. And uh, we've begun to uh, work with other states. We're now working with the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Coalition for Suicide Prevention to offer frameworks training in Massachusetts as well. And there's a couple of other states that we are um, in the process of moving forward with as well. How would people find out more information about frameworks? They could go to the NAMI New Hampshire website, which is namih.org. Again, namih.org. Um, and that's where the uh, the best source of information would be. Um, what, In our few closing moments that we have, um, what is the most important thing that we all need to know as a community about suicide? Um, well, I think the most important thing to know is that it, it can be prevented, and it can be prevented by talking about it um, and um, by overcoming whatever those sort of myths or barriers that we feel, that discomfort that we feel if we're concerned about somebody. If we're concerned about somebody, we should, you know, check it out or ask them or, you know, or ask somebody else, um, but don't don't ignore um something that you're concerned about. I mean, if you saw somebody with a broken arm or somebody that was bleeding, you would never think about passing them by. Likewise, if you see somebody who you're concerned about because they emotionally seem to be in a lot of pain, it's important to make sure that they get um, proper medical attention. I was thinking, are there any type of support groups for people who um, have attempted suicide and survived? Are there any specific groups where people can go and talk about that experience? Or? Uh, that's a great question, and I believe that there are some, um, but I think that they tend to be few and far between. But um, I think if you Googled that, you would find that, um, that there is some information and some websites that's specific for uh, suicide attempt survivors. And um, I believe there's also a group uh, for families uh, that's called Compassionate Friends. They deal well, with the death of children, right? Or right. Um, Compassionate Friends would be one resource for survivors, but there there are actually other groups that are specific to, um, to suicide prevention. Uh, Samaritans, if there's a local Samaritans chapter, often has uh, those types of groups or if you go to ASSP.org, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, they do a lot of work with um, suicide survivor groups, and they have lists of survivor groups that are available in um, across the country. I know oftentimes one of the things that propels um, families to call us at Westbridge is that the, their family member has a mental illness and a co-occurring substance use disorder, and they've made some type of an attempt or they've overdosed and the family is so scared of losing their family member and I think the important thing for everybody to understand is that that help is available and that talking about this is so important as you said and that um, oftentimes uh, suicide can be prevented. Absolutely. I mean that's that's really the best thing is to reach out and um, and find that help and don't worry alone. I want to thank you, Ken, for um, 
spending this hour with us. It's gone by really fast and uh, enlightening us on suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. Thank you. Okay. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good week, everyone. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.